Listen up, all you New York fans. Veteran New York sports talk host John Dostromsky gives his unique take on all the big stories in the Big Apple and beyond, including guest conversations, gambling picks, and reactions from you, the listener. Check out New York, New York with John Dostromsky on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to the Press Box. Brian Curtis of The Ringer here along with David Shoemaker and our producer, Devin Manzi, sitting in for Erica Cervantes. Coming up on today's show, Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, wonders aloud whether reporters should ever go back in the locker room. What's he really saying? Plus, David and I bid farewell to political satirist PJ O'Rourke. What made him great and why was he a humorist for his times? But David, let's begin with the biggest story in the world right now, which is Russia deploying its troops into eastern Ukraine, which the White House is calling, according to the Washington Post and other outlets, quote, the beginning of an invasion. Joe Biden was speaking just as we begun to record today. It has been really interesting to me over the last week or so to read the coverage, because tell me if you agree here. So much of it feels like, and here I'm going to use a beautiful Washington cliche, tea leaf Mm -hmm. reading. Like nobody knows the answer to the most important question, which is, will Russia invade Ukraine? And now maybe amended to, in what way will Russia invade Mm -hmm. Ukraine? So we are looking just at this constellation of signs from inside the United States, from our intelligence services, from Russia, from Ukraine, for answers to that question. Yeah. I mean, there's there's not a lot of comparable situations in which, you know, it just, just speaking in terms of journalism, where, you know, the brain trust of the New York Times has to sort of outsource its brain to, you know whoever they have on the ground in Russia or whoever they trust in, in, um, you know, inside the government, it it does seem like, and, and it does seem like the people they're relying on are reading tea leaves themselves. Right. So there's just, it's like a multi dimensional tea leaf chess match or something, but, but it's, um, yeah, it's, I think you put on top of that, this whole level of this extra layer of apprehension about, armed conflict right that like that just it's not there's never it's not an a to b it's or it's not a one-to-one but the media's culpability in our last war or i mean going all the way back to weapons of mass destruction and all that kind of stuff um has to be ringing in their ears as like with every piece that any newspaper any television outlet anybody uh, publishes right because it's all it's not disconnected, no matter how disconnected you would presume it to be or want it to be. Meaning watching every phrase we print. Yeah. Every headline we print. The way we emphasize certain bits of intelligence versus other bits of intelligence. So that we as a collective media, scribing here guilt to all of us, don't get it wrong again, or at least don't get it wrong in the same way again. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I guess, you know, in in those terms, 
watching outlets over the last 24 to 48 hours try to get the language right was really interesting. This was from Brian Stelter and Oliver Darcy's CNN newsletter. As Monday turned to Tuesday, many news headlines were about Vladimir Putin ordering so-called peacekeeping troops to two pro-Moscow regions of eastern Ukraine. I was surprised some sites used the term peace without any quote marks at all, as Jane Litvinenko, a veteran of the disinformation beat, tweeted, don't even get me started on the schmucks printing headlines on Russian peacekeepers going into Donetsk. Was Putin's speech the speech of a peacekeeper? Use words wisely. So there's one example. Uh, Stelter and Darcy go on to note CNN's homepage said it more clearly, Putin orders troops into eastern Ukraine. The Washington Post went with a similar headline with the off-lead story titled, White House Wrestles With Whether Russia Has, Quote, Invaded Ukraine. On American Cable News, the word invasion was used over and over again. So you see people being very, very careful. Just with, again, not only not only a Putin word like peacekeepers, but invasion. Is it time to say this has happened? And again, just as we were turning on the recorders here, you see the Washington Post, uh, New York Times, and others going, really going with that word uh, after some guidance with the White House. U.S. calls Russia's actions an invasion, announces new sanctions. That's the headline on the Post website right now. Yeah, I'm looking right now as you say this. It's a very... It seems so weird to have to to have to be discussing syntax, you know, whatever, when we're talking about something that could be that already is so much more significant and could be something, you know, really dire. Um, but in terms of media, you're right. It's a, it's an abundance of caution at this point. You know, I mean, it's it, like, but does it I guess the question is, does it get in your get in the way of reporting the news when you're worried about how it's presented? I mean, it's is is there is it possible to be overly cautious at a time like this or is the caution exactly what we need and it, in a way that we haven't had it before? <laughs> well, you're going to be criticized either way, right? <laughs> if you're overly cautious or if you're too cautious, you know, and news organizations know that. In terms of tea leaf reading, uh, some of the things people were looking to, Joe Biden's own remarks on Friday where he said, quote, as of this moment, I am convinced he's made the decision, meaning Putin had decided to invade Ukraine at that moment. That was a big, big one. Putin's own speeches, including the one where he said Ukraine, quote, never had a consistent tradition of being a true nation. We know Putin has tried to eliminate independent media in Russia. So you have U.S. reporters watching Russian state television right now and taking it as more or less an official or semi-official statement of Russian policy and intentions. Yeah. Ju Julia Davis wrote a good story for the Daily Beast about this. Uh, it says, in truly Orwellian fashion, Russian state media was prepping the public for the prospect of war with Ukraine, but attempting to place the blame exclusively on the United States and NATO. She also had RT's editor-in-chief appearing on a program and saying, quote, first of all, I don't understand why there isn't champagne in the studio, dot, dot, dot. I've been waiting for eight years for this, dot, dot, dot. It finally happened. This is true happiness. And did you see, were you telling me about this, was like Caitlin Collins tweet? Oh, yeah. That set Washington aflutter. What was that? I think, I'm pretty sure it was Caitlin Collins just tweeted that that well basically just tweeted that joe biden would not be going to delaware over the holiday weekend would be you know staying at, uh, in dc the way that it was worded from the white house not from collins was that he had a family matter that his, the, whatever family matter had been the original reason for him taking the trip was no longer a matter and so he was staying sort of passive you know passive voicing uh the the, the change in his calendar uh with a little hand wave um but you know, obviously the reaction to that was, was, well, I mean, the, the, the existence of the tweet in and of itself was sort of ominous, right? I mean, there are reporters that, that, that would tweet every change in a president's schedule. Obviously this is not one of those cases. There's a lot more, you know, subtext here. Um, and that subtext was kind of spelled out by everybody in the replies. It was kind of, it was kind of funny to see, 
you know, we've talked a lot about how it's okay if journalists are human beings on Twitter. This is not, don't don't take this as a condemnation of it, but it's just funny, it was funny to see, you know, proper journalists, quote unquote, hop in the replies, just being like, uh-oh, this means war, question mark, or like, you know, what I, like just kind of jumping to the, to, to, or, or kind of sussing out you know, being human, it's like so trying to figure out what they should read into that. I mean, because because a move like that, you know, gets you wondering. Yeah. And you see Joe Biden doing a version of what journalists are doing there, right? Or the White House. Because if they say Joe Biden scrapped his plans in Delaware to rush back to the White House, <laughs> that would freak people out. Yeah. Right. That would be, you know, that would send a message whether they intended to or not. So they're monitoring the language and saying, oh, you know, Joe Biden thought he had a family thing, you know, but we decided, eh, let's do that in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Why don't you hang it? We'll hang out at the White House this weekend just to make it as neutral as possible, even if it communicates the fact that he thinks there's an emergency and something about to happen. Yeah. Uh, David, it feels like 2014 because we are about, we are once again experiencing the how do you pronounce Ukraine's capital explainers? Can we not have a central governing body for this? I mean, I know that we're all going to say Nick's the idea of a world government or whatever, but would we really object to just like a copy desk with Craig Gaines at its helm, just making these decisions for the entire world? Like he addresses America at times like Show, this? It's going to be spelled one way and pronounced one way. Let's just get it right. The New York Times did an explainer. Uh, this is this is how they say. It. So the word, the name of the capital is K-Y-I-V, or at least that's how it's spelled in the New York Times. Here's the Times' explanation of how to pronounce it. The K sound is the same as English. The Y is similar to the I sounds in little bit. The I is similar to the first part of yeast. And the V is slightly shorter, is a slightly shorter version of a W, as in low, or almost like the V in love. That is the New York Times' oh, explainer. That, that, <laughs> that explains things. Thanks. Uh, the other thing I want to point out to you, at times like this, America has a habit, uh, not going to say it's a great habit, but has a habit of falling in love with a war correspondent who has been sent across the globe to cover a conflict. Every time. Yes. Remember the scud stud Arthur Kent from the first Iraq war when we were kids? Uh, more recently, Clarissa Ward did a bunch of great reporting when the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan. Early nominee uh, here is reporter Philip Crowther of the Associated Press's Global Media Services. Crowther has been reporting from Ukraine in several languages. I want you to listen to a bit of this. There's been a war with Russian-backed forces in the east, uh, the Donbass region, for eight years now. But despite that, the capital city of Kiev is relatively calm. That was incredible. <laughs> He would go on to do that, by the way, in six languages. According to Crowther's online bio, he, quote, reports in English, French, Spanish, German, Portuguese, and Luxembourgish, which I was not familiar with until reading his online bio. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't believably do that in six, like, voices, like, <laughs> like, like funny character voices, let alone having to have a comprehension of multiple languages. I mean, I, this is, that's one of the most, like that could have been separate from the moment in time that we're in that if that was just a guy doing it in front of a green screen, that would have been like a TikTok video that took off that everybody saw. Yeah. And yet this is the dude doing a job. Like this is <laughs> from Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. I really, when I saw, when I saw the, 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 uh, it's an Ava, Ava DuVernay tweet, and I'm sure it was around before that. But when I saw she wrote, imagine being able to do this or whatever, I expected it to be a guy doing the news with like uh, something going on behind him, you know, like, you know, like a bomb dropping or something and him, one of those videos. But this is somehow more impressive than that. It's just incredible. Do you have a theory about why war correspondents occupy such a place in our popular imagination 
even now Ooh. with the media, you know, being basically comparable to all the things America hates whenever they do those opinion polls, I feel the war correspondent still has a kind of status. Well, it does. I mean, it occupies a similar, not precise, but it's, I mean, it, it's, it dates back to when we were kids, right? I mean, for our, for our entire lives, when we were growing up, the idea of a war correspondent was something special. You know, it had that same sort of like abstract gravity that like quicksand had when we were kids, right? It's just like, wow, that, and, and, and but quicksand no one cares about anymore. Um, but yeah, the war correspondent, I think that because they've all, it's always been the perception of that that role being sort of a maverick character, right? So you could, so they sort of withstand the denigration of the press at large. And then even the more like, quote unquote, institutional uh, correspondence, Richard Engel does much more than cover war for NBC, but you know, he, he's, he's often there. He's, I would say he's presented in a similar way. It's just sort of, they're all like characters out of a movie, you know? It's just like, we're going to cut to this like active background shot with somebody like, the, the the correspondent may or may not be running down the street to help you see what's going on, and they may or may not have shaved today, and that's just sort of part of the charm, you know? And, and, and it's funny because this video that we just watched was much more buttoned down, or buttoned up, take your pick, than what I just described. And yet, the fact that he's just out there stringing for like, 10 different news organizations, a different language for each one sort of shows you the sort of implicit independence of the gig, right? And also the uncertainty of the gig. If you have to go out there and just sort of like be available to whoever's willing to pay you, that probably means there's some like fallow months too, right? So, I mean, but but it is just sort of, I mean, I guess all that is pretty mi uh, minor key answer to your question, but I just think it's, 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 it's just incredible. I mean, it's, it does, it's like, you know, going back to our childhood, like the, I would say the most, the most sought after future career for every child of our generation was National Geographic photographer, right? Like, <laughs> how many people it was did on you the know? List besides, like second baseman <laughs> for the Yankees, yeah. No, but well, yeah, sorry. Once you get past the totally implausible things, there was Astronaut. this idea of not just a photographer, but like a National Geographic photographer, because mm -hmm. you get to travel the world and see all these things. You know, nobody nobody dreams of being embedded in a in a you know wartime background, but it is part of that same sort of place in our public imagination. Yeah, rightly or wrongly, there's this great romantic atmosphere around the war. Yeah. We had John Lee Anderson on the show a couple of weeks ago, and the notes I got from people were like, holy crap, you know, like that guy. I mean, there's just this, and again, mm -hmm. he's a great reporter, great writer, but there's just this imp just, just an imp pop impression in the popular imagination. I've been going through media movies recently, so we can do some power ranking at some point, and it's amazing how many of them are about war correspondents including a number of them during the 80s that I had either forgotten or were completely unaware of, just because I think that is something filmmakers say is like, this would make a great story or a great movie. I was playing with this theory before we came on and, and help me hammer this out. So think about the average US political reporter for a paper, uh -huh. for whatever. The gap between that reporter and a Twitter rando who reads everything about politics and has takes has really shrunk in recent years. The gap meaning what? The gap between what that person is doing on Twitter and what the Twitter rando is doing on Twitter. Okay. You see what I mean? I mean, yeah. it's like, if I'm just, if I'm just reading stuff and tweeting out takes about, you know, what Biden's having trouble getting his stuff to the Senate, I'm not exactly like that person, but the gap between us has shrunk a lot because uh -huh. I just have access to all this news and information and everything and, else. I and access to the audience. And access to the audience. There you go. But the gap between Twitter rando and war correspondent who is across the globe in danger, reporting, trying to get information in a confusing environment like this one is still pretty huge. Oh, it's yeah. still really, really big. And I just wonder if that is part of it too. Like you can replicate a lot of what and again, I don't want to imply that like, you know, somebody who's actually like walking around the Capitol interviewing people and, you know, breaking news is the same as somebody on Twitter, but you can replicate a lot of what reporters do on Twitter, or at mm -hmm. least, you know, by using their information and then kind of posing one as yourself. But I think with war correspondence, it's probably much harder to do that. You can replicate the output of what a reporter does, right? I mean, you can, you, you don't, you're not doing the job. I mean, it also, it all obviously goes back to that sort of central irony that all the people that are saying you know, how, uh, how corrupt the news media is or, is or using the traditional news media, you know, the lamestream media to like 
source all of their stories too. Um, but you're right. It's kind of, it, it goes back, it, it's it's like what I was saying in the very beginning, we're all sort of forced to outsource our tea leaf reading to other people, right? And and when you, when you realize who those people are, that it's not just some, even just a, a foreign bureau, you know, that, that it's often just a person on the street, person who's doing the job of a journalist, who's asking questions and trying to suss out answers, you know, from a very, on a very granular level. In some ways, that's like the purest distillation of the job, right? And to have such, to have like such, have the stakes be so high, you know? I mean, like you're, that person's reading of the situation on the ground in Kiev is going to affect the way the world moves forward, you know? I mean, that's, that's, I think it's, it's for, for people inside of journalism, it's both aspirational and so terrifying that you, that just you know the level that that you wouldn't re- actually make. I mean, you, you would you you wouldn't want to do it yourself. You know, I mean, to have that to have that much pressure is just like unthinkable. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, David, when we come back, I want to ask you about NBA locker rooms and the satirist P.J. O'Rourke. But first, let us do the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the Press Box Pod, where they are always gratefully received. I'm sure you saw this story from the sports world. University of Michigan basketball coach Juwan Howard took a shot. Speaking of language, there was this whole argument about whether it was a punch <laughs> or a slap or what it was, took a shot, I think I can safely say, at a University of Wisconsin assistant coach after a game. After Howard was enraged when the coach or another Wisconsin coach called a late timeout, despite the fact that the Badgers were blowing out the Wolverines. Mm-hmm. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, members of the Fab Five are still having issues with late timeouts. <laughs> And elsewhere in sports, David, nice half laugh there from David, (laughs) some sad news from TMZ. Aaron Rodgers and Shailene Woodley have reportedly called off their engagement. Dang. Called off their engagement. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, Aaron Rodgers is still chasing that second ring. (laughs) Thanks to Joe Zapecki, Kevin Anderson, and Chance, if you were the beneficiary of yet another Aaron Rodgers offseason news cycle. Congrats, you made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. Did you see that thing he posted on Instagram last night, by the way? No, I saw, I was like in the room while ESPN was breaking down that Instagram story, but I got to tell you, I didn't watch it. I wasn't paying attention. It was like nine something Pacific time. And it's right on the the line for me of, is it too late to text Kevin Clark about this? (laughs) You know, because it's like, like he's probably, he might be asleep, but knowing Kevin, he's probably all over this. Uh wow! Another great. Did you see? I saw that he he did a radio show. I was again half uh, half acidly listening to the sports talk radio on the way over here today. Um, 
he had somebody's radio show and they asked him about his future. He took a second to say, to basically say like aggregators, there's no, there's not going to be any new, any news here. <laughs> is, that, is that what we do now <laughs> on a podcast? Just want to address the aggregators before we get It's a sort of started? no, it, it's like the, it's like the, 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 the kind of has like the impotence of the, of the off the record, you know, that we've talked about before where he's just like, I just want to say that no matter what Whatever, no matter what newsworthy craziness is about to come out of my mouth, I want to just say, for the record, nothing that I say should be interpreted as newsworthy. (laughs) (laughs) David, let us talk about Adam Silver for a second. Oh, great. Because the NBA commissioner did something during All-Star Weekend that was exactly what sports writers thought and feared he would do. Or that his colleagues in other leagues would do. You'll remember that almost two years ago, March 2020, It was the early days of the coronavirus pandemic. The leagues restricted reporters from going into locker rooms. Mm -hmm. And I think about 100% of sports writers thought, this is the right decision. We don't want anybody to get sick here if we can help it. Mm -hmm. But, but we're afraid you're going to use a deadly pandemic to kick us out of the locker room forever. As a pretense for kicking us out forever. So that even when the pandemic ends or gets to a more manageable level, you'll say, you know what? We enjoyed the locker rooms without you nosy reporters in it. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to maintain that policy. Well, that is what Adam Silver wondered aloud about doing over the weekend when he was talking to reporters during the All-Star festivities. This was transcribed by the Washington Post, Ben Golliver. Silver called reporters going into the locker room an anachronism, quote-unquote. Said it was, quote, something we have to take a fresh look at. Uh, When pressed, he continued, as I said, I think we were designing, if we were designing this from scratch today, it is an anachronism. I think we have a different sensibility, different sense of privacy than we used to, and I'm not sure that's the right way to do it. We should think about that. Mm -hmm. Sports writers were so bothered by this that silver had to immediately clean up his on his answer with a statement <laughs> this got tweeted out tonight i was asked a question about media returning to nba locker rooms and provided my view on what i see as the awkwardness of our standard locker room access policy we have great respect for the media that cover our league and those comments were in no way intended to suggest nba media act inappropriately while doing their jobs We've made no decision on the modifications to our access policy and look forward to engaging in dialogue with our teams, the Players Association, and the media on how we can best move forward post-pandemic. So, (laughs) what do we think about Adam Silver in locker room? You know what? I mean, I was very... I don't even remember. I didn't. I didn't review the tape. I felt like I was very pro reporter when we had this conversation before. Mm -hmm. And I understand. I fully understand. Well, maybe I don't. I was going to say I understand the reporter the reporter's point of view, but if as someone who's never been in a locker room situation, is it actually like the locker room when they say when Adam Silver says we're not going to let you back in the locker room? Is he restricting access on a broader level than like you being in the room where people are getting changed, or is it is it is is that is it that specific room like? If there were a, if there were an anti room, <laughs> if there were an anti, <laughs> if the locker room led to a bigger room, which people yeah. had to go through to like have coffee and donuts on the, on the way out and the reporters were there, would that be an acceptable compromise? Or is the idea that they, is that the, the moment they get out of the shower in whatever stage of undress they're in, it's important to capture that moment because that's when the news value is highest. So that is a fantastic question. I think it's exactly to the crux of this idea. If you restrict access to the locker room, I think it's incumbent upon you, but you insist that you are not restricting media access, reporters doing their jobs, right? It's sort of incumbent upon you to offer something else in its place. Right, because Adam Silver's comment was basically like the when, when you talk about it being an anachronism and our uh, you know whatever feelings of propriety of change. Yeah, I mean, if the point is we don't need anyone to be around our players when they're changing clothes, like I think we'd all agree on that, right? But if but but to conflate 
But if you're conflating that with access as a means of getting out of access, get you know, uh-huh. like, like removing access, then that's pretty gross, right? Yeah, and you are, and 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 until you tell me what you're replacing that time that reporters get to spend with athletes, or at least potentially get to spend with athletes, when you and until you tell me what you're going to replace that with, you are cutting off access. That's what you're doing. Right now, if you tell me, okay, well, they're going to go to podiums or do do different things like they do during the playoffs. Well, then we can have the second part of the discussion is why do we do this in locker rooms? Well, we do this in locker rooms because we're in a hurry after a game. Mm -hmm. You're right. It doesn't have to be there, but player goes to the locker immediately after reporters are on deadline. Reporters are working quickly. They have to write or they have to get on television. And so they want to see the athletes as quickly as possible. They also go to locker rooms because they want to have a certain intimacy with the athletes. Yeah. Because they want to be able to, at least in theory, go up to Kevin Durant's locker and be like, Hey, I don't want to ask you this in front of everybody else. It may need to be on background or off the record, but can I run something by you? Yeah. And have the potential to either ask him there or maybe, Hey, let's, when you walk down the hallway out of the building, let me get two minutes with you so I can run something by you out of earshot of everybody else. Sure. That's not going to happen anywhere else, right? If you do it all in the podiums, I can't raise my hand and say, uh, Mr. Durant, I want to have an intimate off-the-record relationship with you. Can we meet after this press conference? He's going to walk through a door and we're never going to see him again. Right. So there is a very specific reason. And again, you're in in the in your thought experiment, could we have this in an anteroom that is not actually the locker room? I guess, but are the players gonna go there? Are they required to go there and just sit there in a chair? Are they required to go to the locker room? I mean, couldn't they conceivably just go straight from the bench to their car? Yeah, but their their stuff's in their locker room. And they're and they're required, and that's that is. But they but they are required to be there, right? Well, I mean, it's, you know, it doesn't they, seem they're they're required to talk after a game. Yes, yeah. that's part of the, that's part of the deal. Now, again, they may not decide they don't. They may decide they don't want to talk on a particular day. Uh, they may talk, but actually say nothing or not be you know very in the in in the mood to take questions. But that's the deal. We watch the game. We're reporting on the game. We get to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I got to tell you, it does, for some reason, you say the word anachronism, and it just sort of struck a chord with me. I'm like, yeah, it certainly is an anachronism. There is, Adam Silver is telling the truth. There is no way in which you would be designing a sports league from the ground up and that you would have reporters and naked athletes in the same room. No, There's you just would not no, state that as a goal, no, for your, <laughs> your media athlete relations. I agree. No, uh, and I... I mean, in just about any other walk of life, the locker room, and again, I'm using a very just sort of like abstract version of it, but the locker room is where you be where you would go to like have some time away from the prying eyes of the press or whatever else. You know what I mean? Like there's like, you know, someone there's been so many examples of people sort of like hiding in their dressing room until they're ready to face the music or like whatever. I'm not saying that's an ideal from a journalistic perspective, but like one should have the means of privacy right if, if if they if if one so wants um but it is totally i mean the nba above all other leagues is personality driven and and player driven and 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 we don't need to get into like empowerment you know nonsense except to say that like part of what part of the power that all these players have and part of the power in in potentially ending locker room interviews or doing anything else like that comes from an access, a level of access and a level of notoriety that access provides you that doesn't necessarily, it's not always fun, right? Access doesn't have to be fun. And, and, but, but it is, but it is sort of integral to the way that the NBA functions. And, uh, you know, you, you, we just see the, all the press conferences that, that, um, James Harden, you know, gave last week when he was traded. It, 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 whenever there's a big trade, these guys get up on the podium and they say nothing of interest, right? But they, but we parse it. You know, we 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 can spend a whole day, a whole news cycle on it. And yeah, I mean, it's I think it's 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 very very straightforward. 
you can't say I'm taking we're taking away this sort of access without figuring without discussing at the same time how you replace it. It's just it 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 should be it's a given. Yeah, and I think access actually might be the wrong word, right? I think it's you're taking away reporting is what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And it's so hard to explain because if you ask people who are in the locker room after every game, you know, it's not as simple as the example I had there of walking up to Kevin Durant and Kevin Durant tells me exactly what I need to know. It's watching people and how they interact with each other and how they're, you know, what their body language is like after a loss, right? Kind of un trying to understand the dynamics of a team um, by looking at play, by watching players. Bill always talks about that he likes to be in an arena because he can watch players on the bench mm -hmm. and he can see things that he could never see on television. Well, I think the locker room's a little bit analogous in that, only that you can actually go up and talk to the guys in addition to that, right? But you can also just learn lots and lots by being around people and seeing people in an environment that's not like super formal. I mean, just I, I was thinking about you today before you came on, like imagine if, you know, as a reporter, you could walk into a wrestling locker room. Oh, yeah. After some event, and I know event the matches go off at different times. Imagine if there was like an A plus match, and you could watch the two dudes interacting, sitting next to each other after that. Or imagine if it was supposed to be an A plus match, and they actually put on a C plus match, and you got in there and got to just watch them. You could learn so many things, yeah, that you'd never learn if you were talking to that dude at a podium afterwards, mm -hmm. just by doing it. And if you had that right. If you had been given that right since time immemorial, you would not want to give it up because you would know that as soon as it disappears, it's gone forever. And I think, again, I think sports writers, sometimes it feels like we're overreacting to this because Adam Silver did not say, I'm going to eliminate it, right? He wondered aloud about eliminating it. But the leagues never give you more. They never give you more. They take, but they never give you more. Mm -hmm. So if you don't react like this, they will take, and then it's gone. And then so we is never, the reaction. We never so get the reaction. Back. The reaction is a is to some degree a performance. I right? don't think so. Well, I think it's uh, not that, not that they don't believe it, but because the reaction is not, because if you don't react, then you're not gonna then then they'll just let it go. But you have to do a sort of bare minimum of reaction in order to make. I mean, I don't. I honestly performance, don't think performance implies that they don't believe what they're saying. No, I think, I think it's they a believe warning. It. I, think I think it's think... a warning, is what it is. Right? Like, no, it's a. This it's is going to happen. It's a performance in so much as there were probably people that agree with the point of view I was expre ex expressing. Right? There's there, there's yeah. probably a, a good number of journalists who are like, "We will take a trade off." Sure, we understand. Yes. So it's a performance to say. It, it just in so much as to say that like this is where we're drawing the line, locker room access, because they wouldn't draw the line there. They would happily take the ante room, right? But but I but I, and I'm not trying to 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 make light of it at all. You have to part of part of negotiation is a performance, right? I mean, mm -hmm. if you play if they if the if the if the if NBA reporters got together and said, let's just play it cool. Let's just act like we're okay with this. We'll get what we want in the end. Like they wouldn't get what they wanted in the end, you know? So, no, no, that's part of the negotiation, right? Yeah. Because that's what this is at the end of the day. It's not in the U.S. Constitution that we get locker room access. Yeah. And as fact, as I've gone around the world and talked to other sports writers, I don't think this exists in any other place besides the U.S., at least on the level that it does here. I think I've got this before. I think it's a miracle of American sports writing, but you have to, you have to be loud about it because that's part of the negotiation, right? We're going to get mad if you don't do it because I'm not sure what else we're going to do. Can I ask one question before we get off the subject that might be a little bit touchy? Sure. You talked about how you can see things in the locker room that you couldn't see elsewhere, but sort of implicit in that is you're seeing things that other people aren't, don't, don't get to see, right? Yep. Do you think there's a part of this where uh, the where reporters are, are, are thinking if they if they take away i mean anybody watching at home probably has a better view of the game than we do you know mm -hmm. if you're there in attendance like you said the seats that bill sitting in you have just as good of a look at how the people are interacting on the bench as we do everybody can watch the press conferences um on online on nba tv on the post game thing is there a part of it where like the locker room is the only reason why some of us are still employed and if we're not out able to get that sort of access they could outsource all this to some kid watching online in Timbuktu. <laughs> some of us are still employed or some of our bosses are still buying us plane tickets. Yeah. 
to all these away games yeah. instead of just sending us to the home games has got to be in the back of everybody's mind. I Which think I think be, is uh, I think first of all they should, they should just send them like come on the, going to away games is such a vanishingly small part of the bottom line of any of any major media organization or their parent company or whatever else and and yeah I mean that's the sort of coverage that fans like me are like dying for just tell me everything you see tell me like you know mm-hmm. figure figure out what's going on and please let us know um, but. Yeah, I mean, I, that anxiety is real. And you should be, you know, fighting. I mean, you have to fight openly, openly fight to keep what you have because it's 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 not selfish. It's a, it's a realization that, like, you're providing a service to your audience. And yes. that might not be the number one priority of the, the league or your media organization. Yeah, and I think when you think of, like, having this thing that the person watching at home doesn't have it's also something you worked on it's not just hey i walked into the locker room oh yeah. it's that i developed relationships that i have you know can go up and talk to certain players because they know me because i've asked some questions before because i ask the right questions and get the right information because i can pull them aside and check something right that that's that's what you do that's your job you know that's mm-hmm. that's your job is and again that's why i would say it's not access is the wrong word you're cutting off reporting. And you're gonna have to convince me, you know, really, really work to convince me that it's anything more than that, just cutting off a chunk of our reporting ability mm-hmm. by doing this. Shall we say goodbye to PJ O'Rourke, David, before we get oh out of here? Oh my gosh, yes. The political satirist PJ O'Rourke died at 74 of complications from lung cancer. He's known for his exquisite writing and his conservative politics. Here's a line from his book, Parliament of Horrors. What a title. Quote, I have only one firm belief about the American political system, and that is this. God is a Republican, and Santa Claus is a Democrat. (laughs) Where do we start with P.J. O'Rourke? I love P.J. O'Rourke. I read P.J. O'Rourke starting it man how long i think i probably did pjo work for like a book report if i'm remembering correctly <laughs> not like super young but I, but it seemed i i feel like pjo work was on like an op you know when you when there's a list of books you could potentially choose from i feel like i read a pjo workbook in like 10th or 11th grade or something like that but certainly he was you know not as accessible as as you know dave barry and certainly not in as many bathrooms around the country but was definitely part of that generation of of you know, the humorist icon, um, who, which I don't even know what where that mantle is today, unless it's like, you know, with David Sedaris um, and that and and his ilk. Certainly, there's not a lot of political humorists in the way, but we'll get to that. To me, PG O'Rourke is significant, not just because there's nothing really like him left, because, but because he was the sort of part of an era of a singular style of writing that was comprised by a handful of real geniuses that doesn't really exist anymore. You know, that it's, it was that sort of like accessible humor writing came out of newspapers, came out of, you know, magazines, but really made its way into our lives through these like book collections. Right. And they, and, and to be able to, and some of it was new, I guess it wasn't all collected, but whatever, but to, but to, I don't know. I mean, there's, there are a few, flashpoints in my life as a writer and this is going to get real self-serving and whatever else but so you'll you'll uh, me apologize in advance but there's a few flashpoints i hope other writers have these moments too where you read somebody's you read a book or you read a column you read an essay and you think when you're growing up when you're in your formative years and you think i didn't know you were allowed to write like that yeah yeah and and not only that but like you're writing in the way that I sometimes think, right? Like all these rules that I'm getting, that I'm that people are throwing at me. <laughs> this sounds like a Beastie Boys song lyrics. All these rules <laughs> that people just keep cramming down my throat. You know, I can throw those aside because this guy has made it big. This guy is successful, um, and you know he's 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 doing it in a way that's that seems very unique. You know, I mean to call 
somebody a firebrand just seems pretty offhanded and insignificant, right? There's not really a lot of like adjectives uh, or titles you could ascribe to someone like PJ work that would really convey who he was in a meaningful way. But he he was, you know, he was a writer's writer, you know. There's no there's no writer in the world that wouldn't have like like you know traded that would that would have that wouldn't have traded in their whatever their gig was for what Dave Barry or or PJ or work were doing you know i mean it's like they, they were they were less serious in some ways less 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 they they maybe moved the the the, the geopolitical needle less in certain ways but there was nobody who was like working at that high of a level doing a very doing a thing that really reached an audience the way that they did totally with you on the aha moments because it doesn't have to be reading James Joyce <laughs> you yeah. know, to explode your idea of what writing can be. And I think for us lowly journalists, it's often reading somebody like this. Just that use, that suavity, that use of language. Um, you know, you're right. Like, you know, it's not. But, you know, in, in, he is different, I think, than some of those people in the sense that he did a lot of foreign reporting. Oh, Yeah. And I say this as somebody who was reading uh, his collection, Give War a Chance. Love it. Another quite a title uh, over the weekend. Like there are bylines from Paraguay, Nicaragua, uh, Ukraine, <laughs> by the way, many, many years ago. And, you know, so he's he's going off for Rolling Stone and and sort of doing all these, you know, taking on bigger topics. More can than we, just, by the here's way, the funny you- thing. This we might edit this out of the show. I don't know, but was his was his did he have an, like a a formal office job at Rolling Stone, or did he just have like a title that 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 insinuated that he might, and really he was never there? So he had the title of Foreign Affairs Desk Chief. Right now, I thought I had a cool title. <laughs> it was not half as cool as Foreign Affairs Desk Chief, and he explained because middle aged drunk didn't look good on business cards. Well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rolling Stone kind of had that great, you know, sort of legacy of made-up titles. Yeah. But his was really fantastic. And yeah, and I think it meant, it's funny, I think it just meant like, you get to, you get to, we're going to send you around the world and do your thing. Mm-hmm. And we have, we gave you this kind of high and mighty kind of wire service kind of title. But really, you're our footloose correspondent writing kind of sort of in the Hunter Thompson tradition, mm-hmm. but with this overlay of conservative politics. And kind of being this kind of Republican man of the world. Uh, can we go through his bio real quick? Born in Toledo. I'm not sure I would have guessed that. Undergrad at Miami, Ohio. Starting in 1972, O'Rourke was a writer and later editor-in-chief of National Lampoon. He left National Lampoon for Big Time Magazines explaining, We had been like children pressed up against a window making faces at the grown-ups. I realized I was getting a little tall for that and should be inside eating dinner. Mentioned Rolling Stone. He wrote 20-plus books. Had a writing credit on the 1980s Rodney Dangerfield star vehicle Easy Money. <laughs> in the New York Times. And then, and we should probably talk about this part of his career, became the go-to Republican guest on every conceivable talk show. Oh, yeah. In the 90s. Like late night comedy shows, uh, politically incorrect with Bill Maher. You know, I just need to interview somebody and I want to make sure I have some ideological diversity here. Like PJ O'Rourke was the go to Republican. Sure. George Will was also the go to Republican, but they were kind of the two go to Republican writers. Um, I saw, I read in one of the obituaries uh, or essays that came out after he died about how. Um, you know, you hate to say it, but like Tucker Carlson sort of copied the style, like the, you know, the sort of preppy trapping outfit that he would wear. <laughs> the but, suspenders. That, but, but O'Rourke <laughs> was quoted as saying that he thought is the weirder you were going to write, the more straight you should dress, right? Like you didn't, he, if, if it would have been, he wouldn't have been probably taken as seriously if he had been, you know, rolling up to these Sunday morning talk shows in a leather jacket, and, you know, or sleeveless t-shirt <laughs> with his hair past his shoulders. He did have the sort of flop down in front hair, which has a very specific connotation to the generation that proceed in the generation that precedes ours, right? It's the sort of mm-hmm. the sort of uh the lack of styling product is is a, a like a, a wink at rebellion, right? But um but yeah, I mean I think that 
I think that the sense of humor is that, that he clearly had makes him incredibly approachable to people who have different opinions, right? You can say if somebody's willing to sort of take the piss out of their own party, out of their own values, out of their own whatever, then like you, that's someone you can have a beer with, that's someone that you can kind of reach common ground on, that's at least someone you can like, you know, have a conversation about politics without getting into a fight with. And I think that that's sort of, good humor or something that's really missing right now, right? I mean, it's the idea that the idea that you could not even come to a compromise, but just like come to a civil into a conversation just seems mm -hmm. sort of hard to wrap your mind around. Um, the bipartisan era of political satire. Yeah. It didn't matter that he was conservative, by the way, right? I mean, like if you go back and read his essays, well, I, again, I was reading his essays before I really had politics, but like if you go i mean i don't i don't feel like my opinion on like supply side economics was shaped in any measure by reading pj o'rourke right i mean most of the stuff that you really can i mean to take from it isn't maybe by it's not bipartisan by the strictest sense because everything's sort of every everything's got an angle in 2022 um it's like we've divvied up every little thing but you know for the most part it was politics were secondary to the sort of political human experience, you know? And, and it's, uh, I don't know. I, I just, I just feel like it's, it's really easy for us all to say there's nobody like him anymore. I mean, there's certainly nobody, there's not like humorists on the right, you know, that, that have that sort of, that sort of appeal and that sort of, you know, audience. Um, and not particularly on the left either, you know, I think that most, I think that, you know, I think probably the people who who would be best suited for that or have, have decided that politics isn't for them, right? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I always used to say, you know, when during the heyday of Rush Limbaugh, you know, and they're like, people would say, liberals can't create a Rush Limbaugh, and that says something about the party. You know, we used to always joke, like, no, the liberals are listening to Howard Stern. You know, the, the liberals aren't looking for, like, a political you know, echo on the radio. That said, Limbaugh was a sort of humorist in his own totally inappropriate way. And and I think that a lot of that, I just think, especially on the right, a lot of the things that made P. Joe great have sort of been reduced to showy, anti-establishment, anti-establishment, you know, like growling and... The general, we talk, I've talked about it before. I've talked about it too many times, but the sort of like idea that if you can like point out a, 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 a non, like a subtle, like, a, like a, a minorly ironic inconsistency on Twitter that you're just like reaching yeah. the heights of intellectual curiosity and humor. It's just, yeah, it's just not, you know, it's it, like, you know, the. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio taking a private jet is not funny. You know, it's like no one finds it funny. To be, you know, and, and <laughs> well, you have to. It can be funny, but you have to write the funny line about it. Like I think, I think P.J. O'Rourke would have taken that for material because he loved, you know, movie stars who get into politics, especially from the left. But he would have had. He would have. He would have written a line about it. But you would have written the like, essay about it, and you earn yeah. and you you earn the reaction at the end for the you know the distance that you traveled. Yeah, I I think. Um, you know, Christopher Buckley wrote an appreciation of him in the New York Times. Christopher Buckley, who's kind of his comp in a yeah, lot of for ways. Sure. Though I think O'Rourke was more personal, you know, kind of sneered a little bit more uh, than, you know, in a comic way than Buckley did. Mm -hmm. But Buckley had this line, like, he's kind of been replaced by Ted Cruz in a way. Huh. Which is what you're talking about, right? Like, that humor is... Just like, oh, it's a senator who's kind of like making like, ah, look at the liberals, you know, and that that niche has been filled in that way. And that's terrible. You know, like <laughs> this is not Buckley's not happy about this development, by the way. But I would say if we're being I think we're being fair. I think his heirs exist at like the bulwark. Yeah. Like that's where it is. And among never Trumpers, of which he was one in 2016, by the way. Like mm -hmm. that, that group of people now, again, we may say like, nobody writes like that, but of course nobody, you know, you and I don't write like that either. It's sort of like, I think that's where the spirit of him lives now. I agree in terms of spirit, but I just don't agree in terms of, I mean, I don't want to 
like you know disparage anybody at the bulwark without citing specific <laughs> examples but let's, there let's kill them all at the bulwark today no but there have been a lot of examples over the years of, of people who were like like humorous with within the constraints of like regular writing op-ed writing you know that sort of like essay writing but they're not humorists right and and the turn and and any attempt at being a humorist, even one essay, you know, one standalone essay usually just falls completely flat. It's a, it's a really specific skill set. So yeah, I think there are a lot of people who are probably influenced by him and, and a lot of people who, and there are people that do fill that sort of niche in terms of like the way we consume, but there's just, uh, there's nobody, there's nobody doing that anymore. I mean, and, and I don't know, I don't know if it's that all the people who, like I said, all the people who are that gifted have just abdicated politics altogether. I don't know if it's because maybe it's partly the way we read. You know, you did. If you're not reading sequentially through a newspaper or a magazine, do you really need the humor section to be like your your popcorn break? You know, like like there's there's a lot of different ways that you would get that sort of you, that you could get that sort of you know sensation by doing something else, you can go look at, you know, gifts on TikTok or whatever and laugh for five <laughs> minutes between your New York Times article, you know, uploads. But it's a but that's what I think the me I think the media is just constructed differently is part of the answer here. Like just think about it. He was writing in Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone, right? This is mm -hmm. not somebody in PJ Rourke who was a product of the 60s. This was somebody who was, as he admitted in many writings and speeches he gave, a reaction to the 60s, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And he is, but Rolling Stone says, we like you. We like the way you write. We're going to make you our foreign affairs desk chief. Yeah. Newspaper op-ed pages. Well, here's Bob Novak and here's Mike Kinsley and here's this, right? You know, I just think it's just a completely different world that we're talking about. Yeah. That he flourished in. Speaking of different speaking of different worlds. How about the world where when you came out with a collection, if you were a humorist in the 80s, 90s and maybe the aughts, your picture was on the cover of the book? <laughs> <laughs> yes. An honor afforded to O'Rourke, Dave Barry, Lewis, Grizzard, Molly Ivins maybe. Yeah, and all the way through like the Tony Kornheisers and and sure. and other people. It wasn't just humor. It wasn't just po political humor. Yeah, but, George Will was on the cover of his books. Yeah, exactly. Jeff Greenfield. Yeah, there's it's a, just there are funny. A lot of, like, who would even be that anymore? I guess like David Sedaris, if he wanted to be. He's not on the be, cover of his books, but oh but yeah, if he but, wanted to be. Sure. He would be now. It's just like financial advisors and 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 <laughs> gym co. I mean, uh, and workout coaches and stuff that are on the covers of the books. Uh, a couple O'Rourke lines before we go here. He wrote a book of etiquette in the eighties. I learned from his New York Times obituary. This is P.J. O'Rourke on wearing hats. "Quote: A hat should be taken off when you greet a lady and left off for the rest of your life. Nothing <laughs> looks more stupid than a hat." <laughs> and this is from uh, the collection Give War a Chance on journalists praising things. I love this one, David. Oh, my gosh. If a journalist shows a facility for praise, he's liable to be offered a job in public relations or advertising. And the next thing you know, he's got a big office, a huge salary, and is living in a fine home with a lovely wife and swell kids. Another career blown to hell. <laughs> R.I.P. P.J. O'Rourke. It's time for David Shoemaker guesses the strain pun headline. Yeah. Last Monday's headline about the best pasta in Toronto was tasteful nudes. Got it. Today's headline comes from Anthony Burke, David. It is from the Abilene Reporter News. Wow. Great state of Texas. Mm -hmm. Over at the Abilene Zoo, they have a Madagascar exhibit coming. And part of that exhibit, David, is going to have those animal statues that they carve out of tree trunks. Oh, yeah. You can see, I guess you can see the real animals. You can also see the animals carved out of the tree trunks. It's like a chainsaw, right? You, you, it, it, exactly right. The picture right. has a man carving the statues with a chainsaw. What was the Abilene Reporter News' strained pun headline? Oh, Madagascar exhibit. Chainsaw. Got a chainsaw going on here. Chainsaw. Um, like timber. Like a, 
Um, I remember where this is. Remember what state we're talking about here? Texas. Texas, Texas, Texas. Uh, Lone Star. What do you do with it? I have no idea. Madagascar. Mm, Famous movie, perhaps, uh, we're going here with. This is very strained, by the way. Oh my gosh! A famous, famous movie Lone with chainsaws. Oh, no, oh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, sorry. Mm-hmm. So Texas Chainsaw, uh, Menagerie, Texas Chainsaw. <laughs> uh, Remember the Madagascar, <laughs> Texas Chainsaw. You got it, Texas Chainsaw Madagascar. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> he is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production magic by Devin Manzi. We are back Thursday. With Margaret Brennan, the moderator of CBS's Face the Nation, to talk about the art of Sunday morning television. And then Monday, David Shoemaker and I are back with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. <laughs>